Hello, everyone. Um, I'm so excited that you're here joining us. Um, and we're just thrilled to be able to, to share with you this afternoon. My name is Caitlin Yornall, and I'm the Chief Storytelling Officer at the National Geographic Society. And I couldn't be happier to be here with my friend, Elizabeth Christofferson, who's the CEO and President of the Rita Allen Foundation. And we hope that this will be a, a light and interactive session. Um, so please, please um, share your questions, uh, use the Q&A box, chat with each other, we'll be monitoring those, and feel free really to, to uh, wave your virtual hand at any point if you have a question or, or we're unclear about anything. So I think we're just going to dive right in because we only have an hour and we have a lot of things to share with you and want to have an engaging discussion. So I'll just start by saying, Elizabeth, why are we here? Do we know where we, why we're here? Well, thank you, Caitlin. Uh, first of all, it's a, it's a pleasure to join you and thank you for the invitation to join you here today too. I think, uh, first of all, to uh, a warm welcome and so delighted to be among the community here today of really thought leaders and practitioners and uh, people who understand that communication uh, is, is vital in terms of uh, the aspirations we, we share and uh, seek in this world too. I think one of the things that we all know too is that this is a time where um, uh, uh, we've had uh, multiple crises and our environment is changing so much uh, from wildfires, floods, pandemics, uh, uh, important uh, racial justice, uh, and that we're hyper-communicating, uh, you know, really hyper-connected rather uh, with, uh, and things are moving faster uh, with more ambiguity, uncertainty, and so forth, uh, thinking about how we uh, build trusted relationships and how we use evidence. I mean, there are so many wicked complex problems really rooted in science and technology that we're uh, seeking, I think, more partnerships, more collaboration, more sense of we, if you will, uh, to both uh, support innovators and developing relationships with intentionality and really a full array of multidisciplinary tools to help us discover how we can be better stewards of our planet uh, from trees to human health. And stories uh, can be what hold uh, some of not only our aspirations, some of the changes we seek certainly uh, are, are key to all of that as part of our infrastructure. But Caitlin, I want to ask you, um, the National Geographic Society has had uh, enormously powerful experience with storytelling and a global audience uh, in the many millions. What is the story of what brings National Geographic to these questions today? Sure. Um, I thought we, we would take a little history tour here first. Um, you know, like all institution, nas institutions, National Geographic's been evolving. So we're 132, almost 133 years old. Um, National Geographic Society has always been a nonprofit. Um, and we started as really a club of adventurous explorers who wanted to go out and document and um, really discover the world and share with their friends. It was kind of an accidental storytelling organization. They, they discovered at some point that if they were going to remain financially solvent, they needed to um, sell some of their discoveries to fund future expeditions. And that was how National Geographic Magazine was born. And it's really, you know, set the, the, the course forward for National Geographic as a media company and as an institution um, based in storytelling. But of course, a lot has changed. So, you know, technically, this is some of the first macro photography of the gentleman here is doing in the early 1900s trying to um, capture insects. So the technology looks totally different. But, you know, the way we approach storytelling is also different now. Um, we are 
thinking a lot about who should be telling stories and why should we be telling stories. Just because we saw it and we think it's important isn't necessarily enough. That's oftentimes a good driver, but we wanna think about, you know, how do we make science and our world accessible to everyone? And I, I, I personally think that storytelling is the best way to do that. I think it's what makes us human. Um, it, what makes us unique as a species is how we recall history. It's how we find patterns and narratives and it's what makes us laugh, right? I think every good joke is a story. Um, and so now, you know, the technology is different. In this case, we're putting a camera on a shark, um, which I don't think that gentleman on the previous slide could have ever imagined. But the, the premise really is the same. We're, we're seeing the world and want to share that and share the discoveries with the audience. And as Elizabeth said, you know, there are, we reach almost a billion households a day, but really, I don't think the numbers matter as much as the, the audiences that were able to shift minds, shift hearts, and potentially change action as we go forward. So, um, you know, I like to think about that's what we're doing right now, but also imagine what could we be doing going forward. Um, I, I'm so excited to be here with Elizabeth because we've been doing this imagining together. And we don't have all the answers and we, to some extent, are in early days of figuring out what this could look like, what it should look like. But um, who you see here is um, someone that we both love, a friend of both of ours, uh, on environment, who's a storytelling, a storyteller, a photographer, and a fellow that we have um, co-funded and um, really lean on to help us communicate science. So Elizabeth, I would just ask you, you know, what brought Rita Allen to the point of supporting civic science fellows and why storytelling? Civic science could go in a lot of ways, but why storytelling? Absolutely. Well, not only, uh, Caitlin, thank you. It is exciting because we're, we're wired as human beings, aren't we, uh, since, since the earliest cave days when people actually drew their stories on, on the walls uh, to this. But I think uh, to give a very brief story of Rita Allen, because we're using the then now, imagine if you will, uh, we're a bit younger. Uh, we, uh, for over 40, uh, for over uh, 40 years, we've been funding biomedical scientists, a um, outstanding young scientists at an early stage in their careers. They're setting up their labs to figure out some of the fundamental building blocks as they investigate, um, you know, better options for cancer, neurological diseases. Uh, even somebody helped develop CRISPR. Um, uh, for uh, better pain uh, options. And uh, that has been something that we've been very, very proud of. Uh, and yet about uh, 10 years ago, a little over a decade ago, uh, I have a background in, in communications, public media. Uh, we started thinking more about um, the uh, environment uh, for our scientists. So much was clearly changing in the last decade. And we saw with help of studies from the National Academy and others, uh, that we need far more interdisciplinary approaches to complex problems that are rooted in science and tech. We need, as Richard Bassard was talking about, evidence-based approaches. Uh, and so there's a growing science of science communication and research that have learned a lot about what doesn't work to help people understand and follow scientific guidance when it conflicts with pre-existing beliefs. You know, for example, the information deficit model uh, thinks perhaps we, we all need more facts or the legacy broadcast model, one approach fits all, or scientists and other experts in silos, uh, or the diversity deficit, uh, leaving too many people out of helping uh, prioritize problem solve and benefit. 
and the wide gap for use of research and, and practice, um, neglecting dialogue and norms, no, no, no central source of best practices for agents of change. Anyway, a wonderful uh, introduction uh, to this area of research is the Public Face of Science Initiative from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And they just came out with a final report uh, focusing on priorities for the future that you may all want to take a look at. Um, we've also wor been working with researchers to ask professional communicators at science philanthropies how they approach their work strategically and what they feel uh, needs to change. And so we hear from many that we need to build uh, new coalitions to develop new norms uh, from science societies to media, social science, journalism, scientific researchers, and philanthropy and the need to embed in every part of our work a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion to empower leaders who reflect the diversity of our nation. So important that you talked about the we. We need to work with communities, not for communities, uh, uh, imagining that we have the answers, but to work with, uh, with um, uh, others to, to think about this. So as we are thinking about what we might imagine, and now you're, you're just seeing some uh, a picture of a current researchers, but as we're thinking what we imagine, we came back and decided that uh, one thing one thing we would do in, in partnership in Yay National Geo uh, to create a cohort of pipeline of diverse leaders, uh, civic science fellows who would inspire each other and ask us um, and uh, ask exceptional network organizations to host and yes, thank you, National Geo, again, uh, and to engage in learning side by side uh, and from National Storytelling Summit that you invited all our fellows and other partners and workshops like the one that Anand is giving in, in October and from communities that are often not heard or engaged. So uh, just to give you a little bit more about um, who else uh, is, in, uh, uh, is in this network, Adnan Wazy was part of the inspiration for the Civic Science Fellows. We supported him to work with WGBH and NOVA to cultivate new audiences and new platforms. And he calls the information deficit model uh, fact-splaining. And now a second fellow is joining him at WGBH, Ray Makoff, um, excuse me, Maktoufi, who is looking specifically at ways to spread effective methods of combating misinformation and whose work, like so many fellows, has taken on some new urgency in the face of our current environment. And so among the innovative methods their teams are exploring is a space-themed escape room live streamed on Twitch and featuring teams of young YouTube stars or uh, we have a slide from Public Lab because what we learned from connecting the science of science communication, the art of working with people and communities, we find that storytelling has a very special place, that social science confirms that stories have the power to connect us to others and change our beliefs. And storytelling is how our brains work unless an idea is organized um, uh, as part of uh, a greater story, we can't really remember it. And as social creatures, we're also evolved to uh, tell stories and that's key for developing important social um, survival skills. And the stories also are able to get around people's defense mechanisms and make them more open to information they disagree with. And so the key concept for understanding the narrative impact is transportation, which is when people become absorbed by a narrative and end up changing the process, similar to traveling to different countries that can change your perspectives and beliefs. And I believe that's something that National Geo does so well. And you have so many examples of how through this transporting, we tend to learn more and care more and become stewards 
uh, more too. So uh, really, I'd, I'd love to kind of focus back on, on our, our shared fellow who we're just so extremely excited as, as, uh, as part of the group of 15. Uh, and might you tell us, Caitlin, a little bit uh, more about his work, which I know focuses on attention and how visual storytelling can uh, transport us and shift the way we experience and care for the world around us. Um, what's it like to use photography to tell a story? And why, why are scientists and others using this? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll shift to Anand in just a second because I think he's really the embodiment of this. But um, I think National Geographic, in the same way we, we became an accidental storytelling organization, we also became an accidental um, photography organization and an accidental you know, TV organization and, and, and video organization. We, in fact, when, because um, the magazine really predated uh, the wide use of photography, when the first editor of the magazine decided to publish photographs in the magazine, um, several board members quit in protest because it was dumbing down the science and dumbing down the geography. And of course, you can say the rest is history. Now, whenever we do brand research, um, people associate photography and video and film and, and visual storytelling with National Geographic. And I think, you know, that, of course, predated social science and us really understanding why. Um, now we understand more. We understand that we are um, primates with large eyes and more nerve receptors connected to our brain, um, our eyes to our brain than any other one of our senses. Um, we are able to process visual information much, much faster than written or oral information. And also our, our, our brains remember imagery. So I think, um, you know, we could do a, a fun experiment with the audience where I think we asked everyone to, you know, what's the earliest picture you remember, right? Um, some memories I know I have from my childhood are just flash images, and that's how our brains work. And so I think that rather than just saying, well, that's cool, that's nice, that's, that's um, very interesting, we have decided, you know, as a nonprofit that wants to, our, our mission is to illuminate and protect the wonder of the world, to use that to our advantage and to really um, in, empower and to fund and to build capacity in visual storytellers. And Anand is a perfect example of that. He um, went to UC Berkeley and studied biology, um, which made his immigrant parents very happy. Um, I think made them less happy when he decided to ditch the lab and pick up a camera but he really hasn't ditched the lab. He's made a career out of um, explaining complex laboratory science, um, particularly biological sciences, um, visually. And he does that by really understanding the science, spending time with them, and then building innovative new imaging systems so that we are able to see things um, like we've never seen before. So I'm just gonna, go through a couple of his images here. Um, he proposed a story on hummingbirds to the magazine several years ago, and the editors actually said, Anand, you know, you're great, you're wonderful, but everyone has taken pictures of hummingbirds. How are you gonna do hummingbirds in a different way? You know, they're, they're some of the most beloved creatures. You know, my, my iPhone has probably 200 pictures of hummingbirds, right? We all are lucky enough if you have a feeder in time to get close to them. He, uh, actually said, I don't want to just make beautiful images of hummingbirds. I want to show what amazing uh, creatures they are and how they've evolved 
to be these little super flyers and we still don't understand them. So he spent a lot of time with scientists in the lab I, and to, to understand, you know, how does the reflective, reflectivity of their feathers work? Um, how do they move? And you can see the images are just stunning and make us look at these birds in, in a different way. This is a, a, an image of a hummingbird's tongue and how they actually eat. And, you know, photography has the ability to, to stop time, literally, particularly still photography. And you can see here, you know, how the shape of a forked tongue of a hummingbird, which I certainly didn't know that until I saw this image. Um, this is a super, super slow, um, you know, screen grab of a video that Anand made of a um, hummingbird shaking itself like a dog. We've seen our dogs shake. Well, hummingbirds are able to do that. And this is what it looks like to go in the field with Anand. You know, a lot of it is actually low tech. You'll see some milk crates and some sort of plastic things there setting him up and then a lot of high tech to get the shot he wants. And what I love about this, and I think it's emblematic of the partnership um, between Rita Allen and National Geographic and between Elizabeth and I is that it is um, a collaboration of some of the low tech, high tech, all with the um, thought of we need to make this stuff understandable. If we just um, talk about the fact that it's, you know, abstract and hard, um, it, it turns people off. It turns audiences off. And, and as Elizabeth said, you know, there's too many challenges right now for us to, for that to happen with science. So before I go further, I have a little clip of Anand in his own words. Um, we made this video actually for, for kids and for teachers. Did you know there's a parasite called a jewel wasp that can do brain surgery on its host? It's evolved this incredible mechanism to control the mind of this cockroach. Science photographer Anand Varma collaborates with scientists to document unique stories about the natural world. One project took him to Israel where he learned about the parasitic jewel wasp. I went to a lab in Israel that studies this behavior of mind control. They're hoping to learn how this venom works. The jewel wasp first stings the cockroach's body in order to paralyze it. As the cockroach is paralyzed, it weaves its stinger into the cockroach's brain. It feels around for the right part of its brain and then it injects this specialized venom cocktail that actually removes the cockroach's ability to control its own behavior. The muscles of the cockroach recover, but it can no longer generate the will to move on its own. So then the wasp takes the cockroach by its antenna and leads it to its burrow. The wasp then lays an egg on its victim's leg. When the larva hatches, it will eat the roach alive, devouring its internal organs before forming a cocoon inside its abdomen. The symptoms that this cockroach has are actually very similar to Parkinson's disease where your muscle fibers function, but you can no longer control them properly. And so they're hoping to understand better treatments for Parkinson's disease by understanding how this venom works. Well, I think that's one of the coolest stories I've heard in the natural world. So um, I don't know about everyone else, but I think that that's pretty fascinating. And um, pretty cool that 
you know, Venom cocktail is something that exists. And I think Anand has a unique ability and not only making the, the, the unseeable scene, but also connecting it to real world applications. So in that case, you know, why do we care about this? Um, well, one, because it's fascinating and they're real life zombies, but also because it's got great implications for diseases such as Parkinson's and, and medical understanding. I'm just gonna show a couple more of his images. Um, in this case, this was a um, beehive that Anand set up in his backyard um, because he wanted to understand the development of bees and he didn't wanna be going back and forth to the lab for something that was just normal, like bees growing. So this were in his backyard in Berkeley. Um, so Elizabeth, I guess I would just switch back to you and say, you know, I've done my little love fest ode to Anand and I know that um, everyone here, if you get a chance to ever listen to him talk, you should. But how does he connect to the broader work of your civic science um, fellows and, and why is he an important part of the cohort? Oh, first of all, just thank you for, for showing all this. Every time I see this, and by the way, he's done a TED talk that uh, has reached over two and a half million people. I mean, he's just he's just really a, a wow when he does this. But what he one of the things uh, our fellows do is uh, they come from different backgrounds. They may start out in science, but they understand that using the tools of uh, journalism tools. There are also journalists who understand they need to work with scientists, social scientists, with people with lived experience. In other words, it's valuing different kinds of expertise to think how we might engage with people because as I saw some wonderful um, uh, comments in the chat, you know, that uh, fan of Sylvia Earle, Me Too, Jane Goodall, and so forth. But we understand that if people don't know about something, it's hard to care about something. And so part of this work is, is how, do, how do we communicate some of the important um, uh, importance of, of taking care of our planet when, when, uh, when it's so desperately uh, needed? How do, we, how do we think about uh, even uh, how the climate change uh, and, and some of the science uh, effects and, and influences health and, and research. So there's so many different uh, parts of this. And one of the things uh, that Anand did, he also gave a, uh, they all, all the fellows give a, an example of their work uh, for other fellows so they can learn a little bit more about what tools they're using and what approaches they're using and how they're building partnerships, I think, that people haven't built before. And so he did a wonderful thing in his garage showing how he had been taking care of jellyfish, uh, which is another example, and everybody was mesmerized. I mean, just immediately started caring about what happened to the jellyfish during COVID. You know, did they survive? How did he keep them going through? And it just was a perfect, um, even small example of how we jellyfish may not be on our most of our minds every day, but when we have the opportunity to see something as spectacular as that, and to have uh, and to tell the story, we we start developing uh, more curiosity about the world uh, too. And I think part of what what we're doing, we've got we've got um, uh, individuals working in other um, networked organizations, whether it's media or academia, or um, uh, you know, uh, uh, working uh, directly uh, in in communities. It's it's coming together and sort of developing the collective approach. That's where the civic and civic sciences is, is. Is that it's we have to move from the I to the we and figure out how to make we across silos and. Uh, and disconnects that we have in, in our society in order to uh, really address some really complex and important uh, things. And we see just an enormous opportunity in the power of, of storytelling uh, to, to create that change. I know that we also 
Caitlin, you and I uh, work with media impact funders and work with other funders to try to help, um, you know, with very limited resources as, as, uh, as we know that um, uh, there's lots of stresses on journalism as well as many other sectors of our society uh, to think how we can, how we can really um, uh, call ourselves to collective action and to, if you will, um, create, create a, um, you create greater access, I think. I, I uh, wanted to mention that John Powell, who has a quotation of belonging about not just pulling up a chair to the table, uh, but to have agency when you're at the table. And I think that's partly what we want to do is, is through our uh, storytelling is, is create room at the table for all of us uh, because uh, of um, issues that are essential to, uh, to our well-being uh, too, and to creating more equitable and resilient future. I think that's, that's ultimately, uh, uh, and re-examining uh, and reimagining an even uh, better, uh, better pathways uh, to that future, I think. So I think we also want to talk, Caitlin, and have our um, audience, if you will, uh, or people who are here joining us today, uh, join us in some questions, but I'm wondering even how, how they might be using um, storytelling in their work, how they, um, you know, what some of the opportunities might be, what some of the barriers might be, how, how as we bring you to the table, um, you know, might you pose some of the questions so we can have more, more of a conversation. It's, it's fun to show things that we care deeply about, but uh, we learn, grow, become as, as we listen to others too, don't we, Caitlin? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm lucky enough to be immersed in the world of storytelling all the time. Um, but I really would love to hear from from this group here. Um, how how are your are you are we collectively experimenting with with storytelling or leaning into it or where are there challenges um, in this space? So um, we have. I do see Emily Chow has just mentioned what are the challenges that you face when working with scientists to tell these important stories. And thank you, Emily. That's a that's a great question. We we all know that. Um, that we have uh, still different uh, important shifts, if you will, on how we might uh, connect. But one of the things that uh, many people didn't even know, Caitlin, is how many scientists you actually have as storytellers. And maybe you want to start there first, and then we can add a few more things. Yeah. Yeah, we actually at National Geographic were lucky to um, have a, a cohort of people. Anna is one of them who started as scientists. Um, few of them went all the way to the PhD level, but started as scientists and then decided that they really their heart was in storytelling. And so um, Anand's a great example. Ronan Donovan, um, you might have seen, he has a show this summer or last fall on National Geographic um, channel about the secret lives of wolves. Um, we have Nirupa Rao, who's a botanical illustrator who started as a botanist. Um, I think that that is a natural transition for some, but, but they're few and far between, those who really can master both. So I think that, um, there's a, several ways to approach this. One, we do a lot of training for scientists. So we have science grant, grantees who um, we put them through, through something called a science telling boot camp, um, where we really try to get um, them to understand, like, how would you make an abstract into a pitch that a journalist would listen to? How do you speak to a journalist? How do you um, speak to camera on your phone? If you find a new species, take a picture of it. Preferably take a picture of it, you know, without your shadow on it or out of a bag dead. Um, these are some of the just basic 101s that, that seem simple to us that um, just scientists aren't trained to think this way. Um, and then I think the other, you know, great success traditionally of National Geographic has been pairing storytellers with scientists, but they have to be storytellers who 
have time and patience and the intellectual curiosity to, to get into the world with scientists, whether that's in the field or in the lab. And I think, you know, that's becoming one of the bigger challenges in the media landscape as budgets get crunched and the news cycle gets faster, is how do we create space in the industry for that long, science happens slowly, and for journalists to be able to keep pace with that and understand and slow down. Um, and so that's something that I spend a, a, a lot of time thinking about. I don't know if you'd add anything to that, Elizabeth. Well, sure. I, I, I think it's so exciting hearing what you are doing, and it uh, inspires people too. But I also know Pew, as, as Reed Allen does, uh, we've got a, a, a lot of scientists in our, in our, uh, that we've uh, funded over the years. And we're also seeing, uh, partly because of the, the incentives for, for uh, scientists, they haven't perhaps had background in, in uh, storytelling or a boot camp such as you're, you're talking about. Um, but the younger um, uh, scientists who are growing up as digital natives, I mean, they're interested in podcasting, they're interested in connecting uh, with Mary Woolley at Research America. Want, they want to build new relationships and they understand that they need to have uh, better ways that people can understand. So it doesn't feel like you're, uh, that you have a language apart from other people, but how, how, do we, how do we create something universal? If you look at the photograph behind me and I have it, I'm not in California, but it's a, a picture of nature with, with a clean skies, if you will, before the wildfires to this. Uh, if you look at that, I mean, you, you, might, you might imagine that you're there also. You might imagine that you're looking at the things that Anon shows or the places that uh, we, we travel, even if we're, we're home on our couch, uh, you know, uh, watching something National Geo. But we, we know that, uh, that there's a hunger for trying to connect and for trying to have people understand uh, to not only want to become stewards of of uh, science, which which is essential for so many solutions, but also uh, a, a more equitable uh, science for all uh, in, in terms of helping decide the priorities, the uh, and the and the uh, ways that ways that we're doing things. So so there's a lot of new efforts, and people are working together and with a number of partners. Um, on, on how to how to even tell a story. We had one scientist who was talking about throwing a ball with his father every night, uh, and st he started with something that we could all relate or we could all imagine or s hear the picture in our mind, even if we didn't have a photograph at that point, to then go on to how, how what that meant when he's talking about fundamental research. So I imagine these are some of the techniques uh, that you're hearing over and over again, is, is understand what your audience might care about, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, build a bridge. Absolutely. I, you know, I actually studied cartography as an undergrad and, um, you know, the, I remember my first cartography class, a professor saying, you shouldn't make a map unless you, if you can, unless you can articulate its purpose and who the audience is. And I use that to this day, multiple times a day. Like if you can't tell me what the audience is and what you're trying to, um, how you're trying to move them, you have no business starting. Um, I, and I think I see a question from Jill who says, when you train scientists in communications, what seems to resonate with them the most? Um, and I think Elizabeth already touched on this, but one of my experiences has been um, we make them try to simplify, 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 which is really hard because scientists have been trained to see complexity and to think about the complexity and to be specialists and to find their niche within their field. We do an experiment, an exercise, I should say, that uh, sounds super simple. You can do it with kids, but scientists and um, the more learned you are, I think the harder it is, is we make them, we force them to make a video um, that you have to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
and they have to explain how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And we make them break it down. And they say to camera, you know, find the bag of bread, open the bag of bread, find two pieces of bread, find the jar of peanut butter, open the jar of peanut butter, get a knife, you know, you get where I'm going. And that exercise, I think, seems to resonate the most with them because they'll often jump to chapter 23 in their research and their process. And by that point, they've lost an audience or they've lost a journalist. I don't know what you have found has resonated most with them, Elizabeth. Well, as I said, I, I think uh, different, different, um, different, clarifying why, why you want, you know, who, who's the audience first? Uh, what do they care about? Um, what's your interest? And, and then finding, finding the connections there. We also talked, and I, I know you mentioned this earlier because uh, both of us agree this, but thinking about uh, the messenger as well as the message uh, and the audience is extremely important. And so part of our efforts is, is to, uh, is as we care deeply about uh, an expanded sense of we, a more inclusive we, is also thinking about a more inclusive sense of, uh, of, of, of how we communicate with our communities. We just did a, uh, you know, recently had a conversation with a number of top journalists talking about being, being part of the community uh, and or at least developing relationships so, so it's not uh, for someone, but it's with someone. And I think having some of these shifts are, are extremely important. Uh, too. This is something that, by the way, that uh, post this uh, conversation, we'd be glad to, uh, both Caitlin and I would both be glad to share uh, whatever experience we have, as well as learn from you. So I also want to put out there that there's, this is not a simple or easy uh, answer talking about this, but I see that we've got another one, and that is, how about getting advice for organizational leadership uh, to buy in storytelling efforts? That's from Lauren. Uh, and Caitlin, I imagine that's not difficult where you sit, but uh, perhaps you have uh, other things to add to that. I'd say, you know, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I think that um, it's not, and I'm in such a, in such a fortunate um, position, right? You know, it's in my title, it's in our mission statement. But even still, there's this, um, it surprises me even in such a sophisticated storytelling organization that I sit in and storytelling literally built the house. Mm -hmm. um, there is still this uh, tendency to separate, there's our education efforts, there's our science efforts, and then we have our storytelling efforts. Mm -hmm. And and while that's true, we do need to have storytelling throughout. And I think um, some advice, and I don't have it all, I would say is um, if you can at all try it, I think leaders love it. Everyone, everyone I found has said, wow, that really worked. It makes you relevant. It makes you, um, dare I say, like sexy in the space if you can do good storytelling. So I would say, you know, if, if you can try it all even in small ways to show wins um, with storytelling, I think that's a, that's a good way to just crack open the door and do more and more. Elizabeth, you've been yeah, able to I also think sometimes we talk about something and why something as opposed to showing people. So part of it, uh, Caitlin could have showed, showed you um, or described what Anan was doing instead of showing you some of his work. And I think it's really, you know, the, the proximity, the immediacy, as much as we can, uh, you know, come closer to something, I, I think that's often extremely important. So understanding what uh, certain leadership uh, cares about, uh, and, and as we all know, communication professionals, that, um, that uh, we need a seat at the table in terms of strategy for change. Uh, and, and so what 
tools can we offer? What uh, approaches can we offer? And then how can we also show them uh, what some of the um, research says that, and as well as examples of, of where, where it makes a difference. Um, it just, again, hearing journalists in our network talk about uh, even when we show infographics, how much uh, better people respond to understanding the story than maybe hearing the process described. So um, th that, of course, is, is very uh, general advice, but um, again, hope, hope points the direction to, to something that we care about or are trying to do. When, when Sylvia Earle gets up and talks about the ocean, she shows pictures, doesn't she? She takes you on the exploration there, uh, and I know that's over and over and part of the uh, thrill and delight that we have uh, in, in being part of the National Geo community. Yeah, and I think it's, um, like I said before, we're visual, visual creatures and, and we're tired of being talked to a lot of times. And so I think any chance that you can make the case to show, not tell, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it um, will take you farther. Um, I see something here from Sean who says, one of my frustrations working with scientists is their aversion to headlines. Um, they often get hung up on the nuances of scientific or research findings, which can reduce the, quote, newsworthiness of the story. Any taps on navigating this? Well, I'd also say that I think that's part of uh, one of our fellows, uh, uh, um, actually from the UK, Fulbright, uh, University of Texas house there, is uh, also looking uh, at the role of intermediaries. In other words, sometimes the scientist isn't, isn't the uh, person who should step out of the lab or step out of their research project, but sometimes they need uh, folks on this call. Sometimes they need journalists uh, to help them. They need, they need other civic leaders uh, to help them uh, you know, understand uh, the uh, topic complexity. So, so I think creating new partnerships uh, is also uh, an important one, as well as helping those scientists who want to become better, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, people and telling their stories. And, and you're right, I think that's part of the scientific process. Uh, Joe Palka and Big Idea spends time helping people understand what the process of science is, that there's always a bit of uncertainty, because that's the whole concept, is that you may discover something else uh, as you as you continue to um, uh, do your research, so so this is these it does present a number of challenges. I don't know, Caitlin, how how would you like to add to that? Um, I I you know reference back to what you said, Elizabeth, about building the we, and mm -hmm. I found that often you know if you can approach a scientist and really get um, them to understand that I understand that your process is complex. And I, I understand why at times you can even be insulted that you think that I could boil this down to a headline. That being said, let me explain to you how journalism works. Let me explain to you how communications work. And I think if you can show how we'll, we'll hook people and then they'll learn about your science or they're never gonna know about it, right? I found that often just this building the we of like, this is your language, this is my language, we need to meet in the middle can often work. I think, um, I've watched journalists sometimes just come in and I, and I get it, come in hot on a deadline and they're just like, give me the sentences. I don't want to listen. We got to go. And I think um, that, you know, building that, that understanding is key. Yeah, I also want to come back to a question from Allison or comment by Allison. She says, I expect social science too must require space, time, and curiosity. Thoughts for us how to be effectively and ethically curious about the human species. I actually think there's um, some really important work that's going on now, for example, with documentary filmmakers, say, around human nature, of bringing a social scientist together, of, of having the voice of a bioethicist 
uh, involved uh, as long along with the scientists speaking out too. So so I think it's up to us to help uh, bring bring people who have different perspectives who can help us learn more about being ethically curious, who can learn more about being more effective uh, in our things. But uh, but a great way to start, of course, is is at first in this. Uh, um, world that we're living in of so many opportunities to capture our attention is, is how we build uh, relationships uh, and, uh, and, and, exciting, and exciting invitations for people through, I think, uh, our topic of today is storytelling, and that's at, at the, the narrative is, uh, is uh, as I said, historically for, for human beings have been wired to be open to, to, uh, to stories and narrative and to telling them and sharing them. Caitlin, again, um, we're doing a duet together, aren't we? We are, I like it. Um, I, you know, I agree with everything you said, Elizabeth, and for me, I don't, I don't think that we can separate the social sciences from the physical sciences in this space, mm -hmm. right? And um, although, you know, humans are a much more complex, I think, subject than anything else we've found in the universe. Um, I do think it's having the right people in the room. Mm -hmm. And, and Alison, you said it perfectly with, um, it requires space and time. Mm -hmm. And I think the, in particular, the more complex the subject we're dealing with, the more space and time we need. And I don't think there's anything more complex than, than humans and our behavior. Yes, but and I and I think that we know that innovation starts at the edges of, of people with different perspectives and backgrounds and so forth. So thinking intentionally about how we build those uh, those connections are are really important too. I love the one about sound bites because oh my goodness, uh, we know that even even uh, a sound bite has shortened in its length. Uh, you know, I think uh, for for journalists to this, what do you think about Caitlin when you think about uh, helping um, scientists? Um, or anybody, I guess, thinking sound bites. Uh, yes. Well, I know I've had the terrifying experience several times of, of going through media training, right, before I've done a big live spot. And uh, I hate it, but I then force it upon other people where if you record yourself, mm -hmm. you get not even a very skilled editor to start shortening you into bites and you sound terrible or you say, I've never said that. I think it's an enlightening ex experiment. I would say, you know, I've done that with scientists where I'll say, you know, give me two sentences and explain what you're doing and record them and then chop it up. And they're like, but, but, but. And so I think a lot of this is just practice and repetition. I think also I found that it's okay to give permission to people to say, gee, I can't really explain that in four or five words, but let me, you know, let me just start or to say, you know, let me just describe the overall feeling or the, you know, try to, sometimes it's okay to say, I can't answer that in this amount of time, but let me, let me give you a chunk of it. But to be really like specific about that. I don't know, Elizabeth, you've had a lot more experience in this space than I have. I still think it's incredibly hard for anybody, uh, myself included, uh, and all of us when we're dealing with things that are changing, evolving, uh, uncertain. We're, we're, we're used to asking the questions and searching for answers that may change. So there's a lot, uh, that, a, lot a lot of tension even between thinking that we're going to say something in a short amount of time that uh, will satisfy an, an answer. So uh, one of the things you point to is, is media training, is the opportunity if you can, if you can actually uh, think and talk about it. And I often, uh, we, we do this um, sometimes with our work too, is if we can think again of, of uh, telling the story uh, to someone uh, who perhaps isn't familiar with the field and start uh, start practicing and imagining our conversation if, if we're 
talking anyway uh, you, you can pick anybody you'd like but um, if, if I think that helps um, helps break it down and I think that was part of the question too that Jill had about the PB and J example um, and going research um, we'd be happy if you want to email or something is to is to connect you we, we put a number of things and, and thank you Fatu into the chat about um, a lot of a lot of resources on um, on science of science communication we're reminded that uh, this isn't a new field it's just I think new for many people to be thinking about connecting research and practice it's something that we heard over and over again from the National Academy of Sciences is the need to kind of um, connect uh, more social science research with people who are actually um, uh, working working uh, practitioners and uh, scientists and, and others so um, so that's really important what what are you going to add Caitlin I would say, um, yeah, we, we can definitely find some research for this, Jill, but I also think, um, you know, the average attention span and reading level of most media that people consume is way lower than the world scientists work in. And, and I think once scientists understand that, um, I think it's easier. And I think oftentimes we just come in, you know, journalists will come in a little bold and say, no one's gonna understand this, no one's gonna understand this. But I think if we can force them to simplify and say, people will understand, you've just gotta work on it, that's there. But yes, we can we can send over the research that we have. Um, so, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to wonder if Tristan could actually open it up so some of the people who are participants actually could could see. I would love to actually hear instead of us offering both of our advice. I think the other thing that we've heard through service and so forth is we need to shift more where we all listen more. You know, scientists can listen more, we can listen more, and uh, again, that starts with understanding uh, our audience uh, through through listening. And I'm just wondering those who are on the call if they if perhaps they might join and offer offer some of their examples that that resonate with things that you heard from Caitlin or seeing Anon or or what we we're talking about today. Absolutely, please do um, let Tristan know if you're brave enough to go on screen with us. You, you're in my spare bedroom, so I won't judge. <laughs> Um, I, I, while, while we're waiting for brave souls, um, I, I do love this question from Sabrina, who says, uh, you know, a lot of this has been based on, uh, the conversation's been based on physical sciences. What about social scientists? Um, in my organization, we have a hard time storytelling on our research because we work on human subjects. Human migration, labor abuses, um, we want to keep our storytelling ethical, i.e. no poverty porn, and effective at the same time. Um, what are some suggestions for fresh approaches? And Sabrina, this is hard because um, we know kind of the cheap way to do this is through the poverty porn or, you know, for only $3 a day, you can save this child. We also, thank goodness, as an industry um, have, as a society, are starting to recognize a lot of the, the problems with that and that what happens when we take agency away from subjects of those um, communications I know I do a lot of teaching photography courses and one of the things, the first things that I go over with students is um, where is the camera relative to your eyes? You know, when we pull up a lot of classic NGO, say, you know, saving poor people um, images and we're always looking down versus, you know, political headshots, you always look up. So where is the power? And I think, um, one of the things that we do at National Geographic that I'm really proud of is we do something called PhotoCamp, where we work in communities similar to the ones you're 
discussing and we give young people their cameras and we work with them and we want to um, see their images and their um, stories through their eyes. And I found that those images and their words, when we do just a little bit of packaging and polishing are far, far, far more powerful than anything that we traditionally would comes out of a comm shop. Um, so I know it's kind of a deviation from normal communications about research, but I think if you're researching people, um, those people can have a voice in, uh, in telling the story. I don't know what you'd add, Elizabeth. To that. No, I think I think we're talking uh, similar themes here, which is is again, it's uh, here's the tension again, giving a soundbite to a complicated answer, which isn't exactly what we want to do, but it but it uh, probably deserves uh, more uh, conversation, understanding the context, and and doing something. But again, again, I think you you uh, did this. I see we have a new face on the screen, which I'm really delighted and thank you um, very much for joining us. Maybe you'd share your name. Uh, and, um, and your comment too, we'd love to hear from you. Sure, well, thank you so much for uh, leading this wonderful discussion. Uh, my name is Anastasia Ordonez and I'm the Director of Communications for the College of Natural Sciences at the University of Massachusetts. Wonderful. And uh, one of the challenges, I've worked with nonprofit organizations in communications for a number of years, working specifically with scientists now, as I had mentioned in my earlier question, uh, it can be challenging simply because they're so used to talking about complex ideas mm -hmm. in these very long-winded ways, right? So, you know, trying to get them to parse their words and into sound bites and you know ways that are that are easily communicated can definitely be a challenge. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you both about is uh, social media, because mm -hmm. I find that you know oftentimes for all of us who've worked with earned media and with press. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to think about you know, training people for communication using traditional media channels, but really a lot of the communications taking place now is through social media. So you know, what are some examples or, uh, or even guidance that you have to help scientists you know, communicate better on the different platforms, um, whether it's using you know, multimedia or what, what have you? Uh, because I think it's just a fantastic opportunity, especially to connect with young people. What have you done, Anastasia? I'd, lo I'd love to hear that. I, th I think that would be great because, as I said, I sometimes find out that we have people who already are on it uh, because they're well well versed, and then then others who are who are less fluent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know we've we've been experimenting a lot um, at you know at, at CNS, the College of Natural Sciences, and working with some of our colleagues in other higher education uh, institutions. There are some of our uh, faculty and researchers who are really good at you know, cultivating and developing that, that social media um, following and persona and, you know, and naturally turn to Twitter and to Instagram to tell their visual stories. Uh, one thing that we've been working with is you know, a couple of faculty members who've been doing uh, great research and documenting their research uh, using video and working with them to you know, cut their longer video stories into smaller segments that they can then share on Instagram stories you know, or um, you know, in other ways. And, and it's, it's, it's really enlightening and fun, I think, because you do end up having to figure out, well, what's the nugget of the story that is most important for that audience to get from, you know, from the work that's going on there? Uh, we have one faculty member, Duncan Urshik, who you know, runs a digital life program and he's been doing 3D modeling of uh, different endangered animals around the world. And one of the things that they just released this week is a 3D model 
of a hammerhead shark down in the Bahamas named Nemesis, which mm -hmm. was this really cool, you know, awesome uh, story that has made its way around, uh, you know, video and, you know, in other communications channels for a number of years. But turning that amazing animal into this 3D model now allows you to engage with it in a completely different way. And you literally can go into the Digital Life website and, you know, turn it multiple ways using your mouse, right? And so, you know, that becomes sort of another tool to help communicate the science of conservation, especially ocean conservation and some of these more threatened animals. Um, but I'm constantly looking for ideas of ways that we can, you know, better engage social media communities and, you know, and followers um, so that, and with, in our case, because we have so many students that we're constantly communicating to, um, we want to make sure that they get the science and they get the facts and they get the knowledge, um, but that they see it in a way that's compelling and interesting. So may I ask you, and before, oh, you go ahead, Caitlin, and then I was going to ask a question. Go ahead. No, I was, one little thing I was just going to say, Anastasia, that I found is helpful with scientists is, um, especially, I, I don't want to generalize, but those who are older and haven't had as much experience is that, you know, I think people hear social media and it sounds like, oh my gosh, what is it? What's the answer to it? When I actually just spent a little bit of time breaking down, like this is, this is Twitter and this is what works on Twitter. Yeah. This is Instagram. This is what works on Instagram. This is, you know, YouTube. This is what works on YouTube. And then not even breaking down like what are stories and real and all this within it. And I found that when you do that, scientists and people in general find their like the proclivity. They're like, actually, you know what? Twitter's not so scary. Those are my people. I like that. I could tweet about my stuff. I could give updates or, you know, I'm taking pictures like, you know, like this every day of my lab stuff anyway, I might as well post them on Instagram. So I think breaking it down um, for people really, I found it helpful. And I always tell people too, like, don't, as you know, as organizations, we have to think, okay, we have this piece of content. What's our Twitter strategy? What's our Reddit strategy? What's that, you know, all these things. As an individual, you don't have to. You don't have to be on all of them. Find the one that you like and good, good at that. And I think that that is also, you know, and scientists understand that and that they're like, oh, I can get really good at one thing. Um, I found that's more helpful than just the scattershot, like, learn social media. And, and I've been also say that I think, again, this, uh, just like with any kind of communication that we do, we under, need to understand the why, you know, and is it something that our scientists care about? So we actually, uh, when I, a decade ago, uh, when I first joined Rita Allen, I asked our, our scientists, and, and of course, um, many of the older ones uh, were not thinking and then uh, about social media as a way that they wanted to receive information, but the younger ones uh, do and did. Uh, and so thinking about how you even might even set up a lab or connecting people who are, who are very fluent uh, with different kinds of medium, uh, with uh, scientists who are less so, and even doing some experiments. Is it, do they want to, uh, why do they want to use it? Is it for thought leadership? Uh, you know, what, what are the reasons there? And then getting, giving them some opportunity to do some experiments, if you will, um, also I think helps, just like with anything that's new. We need a chance to have some, some uh, a lab experience uh, to, to try and, and maybe not do it uh, perfectly the, the first time out, but have some support. And I don't know who, what kind of working groups there might be or, or uh, you know, that you found too of colleagues other than this wonderful uh, community and conference today uh, for people to find each other to kind of uh, also share, share tips. I also think I would, I would encourage some faculty members if they're open to it, like, can their students do it for them? Like, how fun would that be? 
you know, if you let, you know, someone yeah. in their class take over, uh, you know, professor whoever's uh, feed could be, could be a fun experiment. Yeah, we're seeing that Alice, for example, says that she did a day in a life of science, uh, scientists uh, Twitter takeover with one of her postdoctoral fellows. That sounds like a lot of fun and looking, looking at those uh, thoughts too. But I think it's just really cool to hear how people are, are using uh, it and, and thinking about it uh, and thinking about it differently. I know even when we're working with our fellows, one of them was um, co-moderating a webinar and trying to uh, you know, um, uh, tweet out at the same time. And she said, my lesson is don't do both at the same time. Uh, <laughs> But I think, I think the, but good, but good for her for for uh, for you know going for it, right? You know, uh, so so how how tremendous I think because we're going to find people in different spaces in different ways for different reasons, and uh, and I think that's really we have to have as we have a changing world we have to have ways to to uh, learn and experiment a little bit differently. But again, it's it's about creating creating the partnerships and collaborations that I'm so thrilled to have with National Geo on behalf of uh, you know Reed Allen and our other partners uh, doing this, and so delighted that you came on uh, to to share some of your story too, Anastasia. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate you and this conversation today. Thank Great. you. Last word, Caitlin. Well, I guess we should let people how to get know how to get in touch with us with us, Elizabeth. Um, I, and, and what, what resources we have. Um, I'm going to drop my email into the chat here. Um, and, and as well as some resources, uh, feel free to reach out. Um, and I'm happy to field questions or anything in that space. You're awesome. And I think my wonderful colleague, Batu, who's also a, a PhD scientist, communicator, uh, has dropped in lots of stuff for Rita Allen about ways to find us and, and do things. But the invitation is there. Uh, we want we want to uh, uh, learn with you uh, and hear about your successes, um, as well as uh, if there are ways that we can share things that we're learning. And again, do check out um, Anand's um, uh, TED Talk, some of his videos. He's going to do a public uh, workshop too later, later um, uh, in spring of 2021 uh, that I think should be awesome. So you'll, you'll want to keep following him as well as the other fellows, right, Caitlin? It's exciting. You're so excited by your new uh, group of fellows, I know. Yeah, we have, we have a lot of great fellows. And um, I just want to thank everybody for, for spending an hour with, with us and for this engaging conversation. I don't think it's that often that we get to think in this way. Exactly. Thank you, Caitlin, for the invitation and, and your colleague, Rob, and others. And um, uh, just thank all of you. We look forward to continuing the conversation one way or the other. Thank you.